This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 165. Today we speak with Albert Moeller and Peter Lilback about the role of the seminary in today's world. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. I'm very pleased today to welcome you to the program. We have a great panel lined up for you and a great discussion on the way. Let me introduce to you today those who are with me. We have Jared Oliphant, who is the Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary and one of our regular contributors. Welcome to the program, Jared. Thanks, Camden. Good to be here. We also are very, very excited to welcome two seminary presidents to the program, a very unusual thing for us. And uh, our first guest here is Dr. Peter Lilback, who is president of Westminster Theological Seminary. He also serves as president of the Providence Forum, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to reinstill and promote a Judeo-Christian worldview within our culture. Dr. Lilback is the author of George Washington's Sacred Fire, whom I'm sure our listeners have heard about, and The Binding of God, Calvin's role in the development of covenant theology. Welcome back, Dr. Lilback. It's great to have you. Camden, it's great to see such a prolific student. How many programs have you produced by now? Oh, in programs yeah. or just episodes? Episodes, oh, about okay. about 400 or so. 400, yeah. that's pretty good. Well, yeah, it's too many. I need okay. to be reading more. Well, I, I, think this, I think this has to be one of the most extraordinary, considering the fact our real special guest here Exactly. Today. We are very excited and very pleased and honored to have Dr. Albert Moeller, who serves as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the host of the Albert Moeller Program, whom I'm sure many of our listeners subscribe to. And he is the author of several books, including He Is Not Silent, Preaching in a Postmodern World, Atheism Remix, A Christian Confronts the New Atheists, and Culture Shift, Engaging Current Issues with Timeless Truth. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Moeller. It's real honor to be here. Thanks for letting a Baptist in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) We have several uh, Reformed Baptists as regular contributors, and we are honored to have you today and to discuss uh, just various topics. But we want to start with uh, the role of the seminary. In today's world, uh, since we have two seminary presidents, I think it's apt and uh, going to be interesting to discuss your roles as president and uh, how those relate to the church, the culture, and all sorts of different things. So to get started, um, maybe we could rehash a little bit of Westminster's history, and then I'll let Dr. Moeller speak a little bit about the history of Southern and uh, the controversy that happened there, and we'll come back to Dr. Loback and get a little bit of a repeat uh, as to what happened in what, at Westminster a few years later. So how did Westminster start, Dr. Lilbeck? Well, the roots of Westminster go back to the uh, fundamentalist controversy that's associated with J. Gresham Machen. Fundamentalism, as you know, is a word that has various shades of meaning. And in its core idea, it's there are certain foundational truths of the Bible that you need to stand for no matter what. Machen himself didn't like the word fundamentalist because he said, I'm a Reformed confessionalist. Mm-hmm. I'm a Presbyterian. I believe in a whole confession called the Westminster Confession. But he did recognize that the doctrine of Scripture was one of the foundational issues that was being torn apart. He had been a student uh, in Europe. He had been exposed to the brilliant liberal theologians of that uh, 
let's say, beginnings of the post-confessional uh, tradition in Europe. And he had his own crisis of faith. He said it was his mother's prayers that yeah. kept him faithful. Mm-hmm. He came back and he preached an extraordinary sermon in Chester, Pennsylvania, basically called Christianity and Liberalism. Mm-hmm. He said they use the same words. They have two different meanings. They're two different religions. And one will take you to heaven and one will take you to hell. I mean, he was a powerful preacher. Yeah. He ignited the spark that exploded the, the division of Christianity in the 20th century that we all know today between evangelicals and liberals. That is a direct result of the founder of Westminster Seminary, J. Gresham Machen. Well, it created such havoc, especially when he started his own missionary board, standing against the Presbyterian Mission Board, that they finally said, we've had enough. Because it wasn't now just theological, it was also dollars. Monies were flowing differently. Yeah. Same yeah. like Luther. You know, he got theology going. Next thing you know, he also got money going. Money stopped flowing to... south, you got people mad. You're starting to sound like Carl Truman. And All right. In well, those... you know... <laughs> I'm not a Marxist. I mean, I'm not a. So, I'm not Carl Truman. <laughs> I'm trying to be careful, my brother. I'm not a Republican. Okay, how about okay. that? But he's right. Money does play a big role Certainly. in all of you. It's Certainly. only one part, but it is a strategic part. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is that the explosion occurred, and Machen had the courage to say, even before the explosion, we need a seminary that stands for the Word of God. When the explosion occurred in its full force, Westminster was now vying for the attention of the Reformed world. Well, over these past 80-plus years, as humble as we are in terms of physical appearance, the influence of Westminster has been extraordinary worldwide because of its commitment to the old Princeton theology of the authority, inerrancy, infallibility, mm-hmm. perspicuity, and ultimate uh, graciousness of God's Word for His church. And that's why we exist still. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Moeller, could you tell us, our listeners, a little bit about Southern Seminary and about the events that uh, surrounded your becoming president and all the troubles that ensued right. therein? <laughs> Well, I think it's important to start the story where the seminary began. And uh, when you ask the origin of all this about the importance mm-hmm. of the seminary, the, the seminary exists because of the failure of the university system. Um, the, uh, the, the more common European model is of a university uh, context for the training of, of pastors. But that, that just never really worked. And when it was transplanted to the United States, they, they lost Harvard uh, in the colonial era to universalism and, and Unitarianism in particular. And, and so the seminaries were, were schools that were established for the purpose of training pastors without apology. And so our school came out of Furman University. It was originally the Bible Department of Furman University. And James P. Boyce, our founder in 1856, gave an address on three changes in the theological institution that came to one change, which was a new institution. And so the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary was established in Greenville, South Carolina. Mm. Uh, along came a rather nasty sectional division in the United States that ended in violence. And uh, after the Civil War, there was no future for the seminary in Greenville. And that's why we ended up in uh, the, the, uh, the city of Louisville, which mm-hmm. was, in a border, was a border city in a border state, uh, with a railroad nexus, and in God's providence, it was the right place for the seminary to be. The seminary became the largest seminary in the world uh, within a generation of moving to Louisville, and uh, everything should have been a, a, a smooth sailing story. But when when Pete mentioned the fundamentalist modernist controversy, most people would look at the Southern Baptist Convention and look indeed at the South and say it largely escaped, but that was not true. It was just hmm. delayed. 
And in reality, from the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, certainly into the 70s and the 80s, theological liberalism crept into Southern institutions, and in particular into Baptist institutions, and specifically into Southern seminary. The Southern Baptist Convention is a populist denomination, and it was grassroots laypeople mobilized by a few very courageous leaders who decided to wrest the control of the denomination back. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation just a couple weeks ago with John Shelton Reed at the University of North Carolina. He's an Anglican. And uh, speaking of the SBC and its conservative resurgence, he said, just remember, that was a pitchfork rebellion <laughs> in a denomination that still had people with pitchforks. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, that's the way it worked. And, and they, uh, they sacrificially uh, made sure this happened. And it all got down to the election of agency heads and institutional presidents. Mm-hmm. And I was the last in that series elected because Southern was the last institution to come under conservative control. And it's the Mother Seminary. Uh, it was it was the liberal the most liberal of the institutions. It was it was the one that uh, that had most uh, deluded itself into thinking that scholarship meant liberalism. And so when I was elected in '93, we had a battle royal, and we basically had to turn the institution not 45 degrees, not 90 degrees, but 180 degrees. Yeah. And that required several years of what can only be described as theological warfare. But mm-hmm. on the other side of it. The Lord has blessed us beyond what I could imagine. Eighteen years later, we have 4,500 students, a faculty of which I'm just immensely proud. And most of all, we prove the point that we know what a theological institution that is established with a confessional identity is supposed to be. And we've recaptured confessional theological education. What are some of the trends that that were inherent in the, the liberalizing of the Southern Seminary and what needed to be done in order to reclaim confessional orthodoxy at the institution? Well, you know, uh, I would have to say that what Pete said about Machen is exactly what I faced. Uh, only I had postmodernists, or at least people with a postmodern vocabulary. And so, if you'll forgive me, I'll just tell you that that uh, my first chapel, Pete, was a that that was kind of the show up and declare war speech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, as my title, I borrowed something from William F. Buckley Jr. when he wrote an essay entitled "Don't Just Do Something, Stand There," hmm. and uh, kind of reversing the conventional wisdom. And I, I talked about Southern seminaries and confessional institution. I read, and I, I've told you before that uh, basically Dr. Boyce, our founder, just borrowed directly from Samuel Miller at Princeton, his Great. teacher. Yeah on what a confessional seminary is. The the confession has to be signed without hesitation or mental reservation, without any private understanding of the one who invests the professor in office. And just all of that. That's great. So it was all there. So I gave the address, and uh, the the student uh, body officers literally stood and turned their backs to me as I preached. I was hung in effigy on a tree outside as I walked in. It it was a bad day, just in terms (laughs) of the the, the institutional (laughs) dynamic. But you got a PBS special out of it, I we think, did, because we did I get, actually saw that. It's yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah, we got a special out of it. But <laughs> it uh, and I was 33. I, I didn't have any business doing this except by the appointment of God. But uh, that afternoon, I knew something was going to break. And I told my wife, who was only 31 and just with two little babies at home, I, I said, something bad's going to happen this afternoon because I declared war. And something was going to happen. Well, so I had a delegation of senior faculty who demanded to see me about 3.30 in the afternoon, and I knew this was it. And and they sat down, and one of them said, now see if this doesn't match what you were talking about with Machen. They said, uh, you got up and, and 
spoke about Southern Seminary as a confessional institution. It was hermeneutically naive. It was academically irresponsible. It was, they just went on and on and on and on and on. And they said, the text is dead. The author is dead. Uh, the text is there for us to interpret any way we want. Wow. The, the relativistic understanding. And so uh, that was the whole battle right there. And, and by the way, I immediately told them it isn't going to work. I, 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 I don't want it to sound like I was filled with bravado. I was, I was scared to death. But I knew what the answer to the question had to be. I knew what I had to do. And as I pointed out to them, you guys are hypocrites anyway, because you're going to demand on a literal reading of your contract and a subjective relativistic reading <laughs> yeah. of the confession yeah. of Touché. faith. That yeah. was powerful. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So in many ways, you know, it, it, the things that, that, that Machen said about uh, having two different dictionaries with a single vocabulary is exactly what we faced. It was just a fuse that got lit a bit later. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of those themes are things that uh, people are going to think are just in our circles. And uh, unfortunately, we don't get out and speak to uh, everyone in in other traditions. So I'm very pleased to have Presbyterian here as well Mm -hmm. as a Baptist, and we can discuss some of those issues. Uh, Dr. Uh, Lilback, really quick, if if you could uh, rehearse a little about some of the recent history here at Westminster Theological Seminary for people that aren't familiar, and uh, what was your experience like, and did it echo Dr. Moeller's at all? Well, I'm so glad I didn't have to deal with 100 faculty members. Believe me, it was hard to deal with one or two that were really committed to a perspective that I was convinced was violating, in some direction, our confessional heritage. This is the way it started. I was just in my office maybe about six weeks, and I got a letter from someone who was an alumnus who said, I've just read this book by one of your professors said, I can't believe it was written by a Westminster professor. Are you guys becoming another blank seminary? Now, it wasn't a swear word. I won't say the name of the competitor. And I said, what in the world is this all about? I I was totally naive, didn't expect it. And that was the first shot that I had, and I began to explore it, and suddenly I realized that there was something that our faculty had to discuss. So Mm -hmm. for two years, we went behind closed doors to try to find out, was there a way that we could understand what this issue was? And after two years of hard work and after the, a book our professor had written had made a lot of impact, both positively and negatively, we realized we couldn't agree whether this was within the boundaries of orthodoxy or not. And so a vote was taken. And again, we can't go back and say who voted why, but I was in the minority, 12 to 8. I was one mm-hmm. of the eight. And now I'd already gotten in trouble because I decided that the former president who was the chancellor of the school now who I think had a different perspective on many things that I did I said I don't think it's going to work so I had the board half mad at me already for ending that relationship now I had more than half the faculty disagreeing with me and I had to go to the board and say you know what I don't think this is where we got to go I figured I'd have the shortest presidency on history at (laughs) Westminster Seminary that's why I didn't quit my pastoral job. I still part-time figuring, I'm going to need a job when I'm done here. I'll go back. Well, at the end of a very difficult board meeting, they said, you are going to have to make the case that the seminary is at risk theologically. So for the next three or four months, I worked on a document that's probably about 250 to 300 pages long explaining my concerns, where we were at. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that, the board voted 18 to nine with the president and as a result nine board members resigned the professor who had written the book resigned 
And in a few months thereafter, two or three other professors left the institution. But not before we came to the brink of going bankrupt, because donors on both sides of the theological uh, barrier were not sure what school they were giving to, and they wanted to see the outcome. What was the issue? How do we interpret the Bible? The issue no longer was liberalism, conservatism, which is, I don't believe that, that's a myth. Rather, it's a much more subtle approach. What hermeneutical or interpretive tools do we bring to the Bible? Do we have a hermeneutic that's outside the Bible or one that comes from within inside the Bible, mm-hmm. from within the Scripture? So to conclude a long answer, I would say the answer was uh, basically this. Does sola scriptura still hold? Is the Bible still its own best and infallible interpreter, or is it something external to the Bible? That, in the core, is the issue that we are wrestling with. It's another form of liberalism versus conservatism, yeah. orthodoxy versus a post-orthodox interpretation of Scripture. I think this uh, discussion brings up uh, necessarily the question of the role of the seminary. You both have spoken about uh, trying to and attempting and, and succeeding, I think, in both cases, of maintaining doctrinal integrity at your institutions. Why is that important? It might sound like an easy question, but as we probe this and start to probe ecclesiological issues, I'd like to ask, maybe starting with you, Dr. Moeller, what do you see as the role of the seminary, and why is doctrinal integrity so important? Well, I want to go back to the prior issue of the local church. The, the most important issue in the, in the organization of the local church is the teaching office. Mm-hmm. And the teaching office is the way that the congregation is fitted for discipleship and, and, and for faithfulness by the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. If that happens, then all the good things that God promises by the power of His Word come to the congregation. If that does not happen, not only is it a, a failure of what ought to be present, but it rather that means that something other than scriptural truth is being infused within the life of the congregation. It's impossible to calculate how horrific and deadly and uh, and dangerous that is. All you have to do is look at the ruins of mainline Protestantism, and you'll see exactly what that looks like. When the teaching office is severed from confessional fidelity uh, and from the inerrancy and infallibility and total authority and truthfulness of the Word of God, then that's what happens. It literally is uh, the, uh, the, the infusion of death into the life of, of God's people. Mm. So a theological seminary bears a stewardship that is absolutely unprecedented. Uh, here, here you have those because it's not. There's no New Testament seminary. There's not a seminary found in the New Testament. Uh, what you do have is someone in particular. The example of the Apostle Paul, who is teaching Timothy, uh, helping to correct Apollos, uh, being being a part of of, of working out uh, the uh, the theological formation of those churches and of its teaching office, and and the seminary better be that writ large, and and it better understand that the same issues. Are, are now just multiplied by the size of your enrollment. You're either going to be sending persons out who are going to be faithful teachers and preachers of the Word of God, thus leading to health for the congregation, uh, or you're going to become an engine, a factory for theological death and uh, all of its spiritual consequences. So, you know, if you want to get me animated, just ask me the question you just asked me, because uh, I dedicate my life uh, to uh, to what I believe is is most important in terms of God's calling in my life and on an institution, and that is to train those who are going to hold the teaching office in the church such that they will teach faithfully, rightly dividing the word of truth. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Lilback, of course, uh, you are also president of Providence Forum. Both of you wear many hats, and you're 
office of seminary president is going to follow you around wherever you go and whatever you do, just like the office of a pastor is going to follow a person around wherever he may go. Uh, What is the role of the seminary, uh, not only in relation to the local church and teaching and developing young pastors for the ministry, what is the role of the seminary in the broader culture, maybe uh, in terms of media or government, how might we understand the seminary in particular in relation to those organizations? Well, that's a wonderful question. First of all, let's begin by saying amen to the answer that we Mm -hmm. just heard. As goes the pulpit, so goes the church. Mm -hmm. As goes the seminary, so goes the pulpit. What's whispered in the seminary will be preached in the pulpit. It will make a huge difference. Now, does the seminary have a role more broadly conceived than training the clergy? Well, absolutely, because we hold to an epistemological system that says you can't know anything unless you know God. If you know God, you know God's Word, and God's Word speaks to everything because all truth is God's truth. While a minister may take a different tact from another minister about how directly involved he ought to be in a social issue or a political concern or a natural disaster, at the end of the day, every clergyman addresses those issues by even his silence sometimes, by saying, I'm just not going to speak to that. We are training people that are training the leaders of culture. Good churches eventually steward their time by training the leaders of the community. That's who comes and serves. Our elders are often the leaders of a community. And decisions that they're going to have to make in hospitals or in military situations or in universities are partly being determined by the worldview that they are learning from the church. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to say the seminary is committed to training people for all of life by training leaders to take the Bible to all people, their inseparable callings eventually. Now, if I can just key off that, um, apologetics is clearly dear to Westminster and, and remains in our tradition and um, is really integral to our whole curriculum. Um, I'd like to ask both of you all, well, maybe starting with you, Dr. Moeller, um, I know Van Til has been an influence on you. And um, oftentimes for us, it can feel like um, talking apologetics within a Westminster bubble. And I, I really wanted <laughs> to, to ask you, yeah, yeah. right. Um, how do you see Van Til as an influence on your personal life, but also as you engage culture and deal with the different philosophical and um, even, you know, biblical counseling issues that Southern right. faces? Um, how do you put those things together? And how does um, the covenantal worldview, the the biblical worldview as Van Til saw it help you as you engage those things? Wow. If there's another question that could animate me, it would be that one. Uh, let, let me just say something that may surprise you. When Southern Seminary was established in 1859, and, and basically until uh, my election in 1993, apologetics was almost absent from the life of the institution. And the origins, because the apologetic crisis had not yet happened. Uh, and, and, and thus it was not yet a perceived need the way that we would perceive it today. But in the latter time, uh, because of antipathy to it, open antipathy uh, to apologetics in that sense. And uh, so when, when I was elected, uh, that was one of the major issues that I brought because that, that's who I am. I consider myself a theologian, uh, and I consider every theologian who is a true theologian to be an apologist uh, because – the whole issue is our accountability to the one central fact of the existence of a self-revealing God. And, and thus, one of the most important things that Dr. Van Til brought uh, was this ruthless presuppositionalism. Uh, ruthless may be a, a, a word that will surprise people. It may say tenacious. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
presuppositionalism, which is just the reminder that everything goes back to prior thought the, 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 until you basically get back to that, that one great truth of the self-revealing God. And, uh, and, and thus, he's so right. It, it, we basically stand in two different epistemological worlds. There, there is the one who stands within the world of Christian revelation, the, the world of that self-revealing God. And then there is every other form of claimed knowledge. And you really can't have a discussion that isn't an apologetic discussion. I mean, I think that's the key insight, because there is no means of communication, there's any genuine communication that isn't rightly directed at that presuppositional level. Yeah. Now, uh, when I became president of Southern, you just need to know, by the way, the other part of this history is that those of us who became apologists uh, during my generation, 70s, I was a teenager in the 70s. I had my faith crisis at age 15, horrible apologetic crisis. And uh, my help came from someone who was a very unlikely source. Uh, but uh, I went to my youth pastor, completely freaked him out. <laughs> uh, and uh, he took me to the pastor. I completely scared him to death. And then one day, uh, the youth pastor shows up at my school in his VW van, complete with the deep shag orange carpet, <laughs> and, and said, I've got someone I think you need to talk to. And uh, so he took me to another church, actually, and it was a Presbyterian church. Yeah. And the pastor of that church actually befriended me, which is an amazing thing because it was the largest, one of the largest Presbyterian churches in the world. And he had a lot of things to do rather than spend time with a 15-year-old Baptist kid, but he did. And it was a lifetime friendship with Jim Kennedy because he, he basically put into my hands the stuff I was desperately looking for and uh, introduced me to Francis Schaeffer, uh, actually quite literally, later. And uh, and it was through him I, I, I kind of worked backwards into these things. And then it was a larger discussion. And uh, and then at various points in my life, uh, I, I look at the, the great apologetic moments were precisely those moments when I, I realized the consistency of a Christian worldview that is based upon what could only be described as presuppositionalism. So what I'm here today, as I have to say, it's just an enormous debt, I feel, every time uh, I come here. Uh, Dr. Moeller, you're also here. We should mention that you are in town. Do you give the uh, Richard B. Gaffin Jr. lecture here at Westminster Theological Seminary? And uh, that is a lecture that deals with culture and uh, theology and missions. Um, could you speak a little bit about uh, Dr. Gaffin and maybe give us a preview about your lecture tomorrow? And as we, as we get into that, we can discuss further uh, theological trends and, and everything that we've already been speaking about. The first thing I need to say is a great honor to be here to deliver this lecture, and it's a particular honor for it to be named after Professor Gaffin. Uh, you know, I, would, I would say that along with apologetics, the, the other great, uh, well, it's impossible to reduce it to two, but among them, uh, in terms of the great gains, I think, and uh, and recoveries of recent time has been biblical theology. Yes. yes. And to think of, of Dr. Gaffin's uh, role in, in, in becoming such a catalyst for that and such a teacher in that, you know, when I first read his works, uh, I was just amazed by his ability to draw together the scriptural threads and weave it together in a way that was irrefutable. Mm-hmm. And, and it not only was it intellectually satisfying, it was deeply soul-satisfying. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's just such an affirmation of, of the Reformed worldview uh, and, and, and of the understanding of, of a self-revealing God who comprehensively reveals himself in ways that uh, the biblical theology uh, then becomes an indispensable tool 
uh, to uh, to come to a, a, an understanding. And there's a great joy in sharing that with others and seeing them. So too many Christians are walking around with disconnected biblical knowledge. Yeah. And uh, disconnected biblical knowledge is like walking around with a, you know a box full of Legos or a, a puzzle uh, with with no discernible picture. Biblical theology is what ties it all together. And and I have the joy regularly at, through my preaching and teaching ministry of seeing people see the picture. And uh, we're all indebted to Professor Gaffin, to Westminster, and to uh, to those who came before us in the recovery. Someone like Gerhardus Voss and others yeah, uh, yeah. of biblical theology to remind us uh, that there there are no little stories. Mm-hmm. There are no disconnected truths. Uh, it's all part of one great theological truth that is comprehensively revealed in Scripture. Uh, my lecture tomorrow is is going to be uh, very much on the issues we've been talking about here. But in the time I'm allotted, I'm, I'm going to speak to the title I'm taking from Oliver Wendell Holmes, who uh, made a very interesting statement. This is the father, not the son, the, uh, the author of The Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, who said... Um, of the simplicity on the near side of complexity, I wouldn't give a fig. But of the simplicity on the far side of complexity, uh, there are a few things that could be more precious. And, and what he was saying was very much a very modernist statement. In other words, he was clearly looking at the challenge of modern knowledge of the modern world and saying, much like Kierkegaard said in a different way, there's a good simplicity and a bad simplicity. The, uh, the the naive simplicity is a simplicity that doesn't know there's a complexity. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what happens when a lot of our young people get to the university and they discover that the world's a lot more complex than they thought. Oh, yeah. But the gospel is not about us being abandoned to complexity, but about coming to a new simplicity on the other side of complexity. And so I'm going to talk about the challenge of theology to achieve that simplicity on the far side of complexity. It's going to be a conversation with uh, with philosophers like Charles Taylor and Alastair McIntyre and, uh, and with uh, some theologians as well, just uh, talking about what it means to do theology under changed conditions of intellectual thought. Hmm. It's going to be a lot of fun, at least for me. hope it is for others. It does sound Definitely. very, very exciting and... Uh can't wait to hear it. And uh, for those who are listening live, of course, you can make it to Westminster Theological Seminary to listen to that. If not, I'm sure there will be ways in which you can uh, get that file, either video or audio. Uh, many things that you mentioned, Dr. Moeller, um, are going to be a surprise to some in the Reformed community. I want to encourage you that it is some. Um, and part of our goal here at Reform Forum mm-hmm. is to spread and advance Reformed theology using new media, but to spread that to all people all around the world. And it's very encouraging to hear you speak about Vantillian apologetics and uh, Reformed biblical theology and, and to mention men like Dr. Gaffin and Gerhardus Voss. Um, could you speak a little bit about uh, the caricatures or perceptions that Baptists may have of Presbyterians and Reformed folk? And maybe Dr. Lilbeck can speak a little about the caricatures of the Baptist uh, side of things. And uh, maybe we can spread some information here and uh, correctly describe each other and try to move beyond some of the uh, unfortunate impasses we find in certain quarters. You know, Charles Spurgeon, when when asked how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human freedom, said, I do not try to reconcile friends. Um, A very good pastoral word, by the way. Uh, When Southern Seminary was established... Baptist theologians and Presbyterian theologians were in constant conversation. Yeah. Uh, a part of our story is that uh, Basil Manley Jr., one of our founders, 
started the Newton Theological Institute. He was moved by his father, who was our first chairman of the board, Basil Manley Sr., later he was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Charleston, where he had close friendships with uh, people like Benjamin Morgan Palmer and others, and then he became president of the University of Alabama. Um, he had his son, a Baptist, move from the Newton Theological Institution, which was a Baptist institution, to Princeton, because he said, better that you should study with paedo-Baptists who have a confession <laughs> than with Baptists who have none. And, uh, and and so there was a lot of cross-fertilization that was going on there. Uh, Southern had Presbyterian students uh, early on because there was no Presbyterian seminary, you know, there in the region. And and our confession of faith is derivative directly of Westminster and and, and the abstract of principles, as is the uh, Second London Confession, yeah. et cetera. So, in, in other words, that's a very modern question you ask. I'm not offended <laughs> by the question, but it, it's a rather modern question. Baptists and Presbyterians, in the classic sense, know where we stand together in, in terms of, of, of Reformed roots and uh, in, in terms of, of theological conviction. We know where we stand apart on, on issues. Uh, and so you ask about a caricature. I would say that the caricature held by most Baptists would be that a Presbyterian covenant theology uh, is mainly about infant baptism and uh, is, uh, is, is ba- and basically leads to a, uh, a lack of concern for conversionism and uh, a, a lack of concern for the, the visible church. I would say if you ask for the caricature, you ask for it, so I'm yeah. obligated to tell you. Well, the point is not to uh, necessarily divide where we don't need to. The uh-huh. point of the question is we do find people that hold to these types of caricatures. And yeah. um, and the uh, the discussion here today, I, I hope, is going to enlighten people to think that there's a lot more complexity. Well, I don't uh, know if we're going to be able to have dinner now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Lilback, um, mm. uh, how might uh, some Reformed people who don't get out much uh, – be surprised by some of Dr. Moeller's comments, and how might they look to Southern as a place that has some great teaching? <clears throat> I think many uh, Reformed people would make the assumption uh, that uh, Baptists don't do theology. They do evangelism, they do social fellowship, but they don't think. But that's really not true. I went to a Baptist college and actually had a Westminster Seminary graduate teach me philosophy, and I never got over it, and I ended up coming to Westminster while not directly because of that, indirectly because I could never get over what I was taught. I learned the Reformation at a Baptist college, and I said, excuse me, <clears throat> is if Luther really existed and taught these things and Calvin did, are there anybody out there that still believes these things? <laughs> yeah. So my Reformed theolo- theological character actually came out of a Baptist college, believe it or not. So I know that caricature is false. Yeah. I think the issues where we probably uh, have the, the biggest challenges are because sacraments are so important to our lives. The form of government under rule, they challenge us. So we easily find ourselves not able to cooperate. But these kind of situations show we have an awful lot in common. I think there's a, an issue here that's very important, too, and that is that we may be the last people on earth who could have an honest disagreement uh, because we disagree on something we both believe is really, really important, Absolutely. as Pete said. Uh, and, and yet we also know where we agree. And so we're able to be very honest with one another. Uh, I have such close Presbyterian friends, but we're going to debate this till we die, uh, in which case they'll be corrected. Uh, and and uh, I say that in jest because we believe it's important enough that we're willing to take this all the way 
because we care about each other. We love each other. We want, we, and we care about the truth. So we're going we're, we're gonna to seek to even convince one another on these matters. But we also understand there are more important issues. The gospel is a more important issue. And so much like the Reformers, uh, I mean, Luther and Calvin did not agree on everything. Uh, the Lutherans and the Calvin, Calvinists didn't agree on everything. Uh, and, and over time, unfortunately, I would say, Pete, that, that those issues became more dangerous than they were at the beginning. I think one of the things we need to do is stay in conversation so that, the, so that we do not find ourselves disagreeing where there is no need for disagreement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that comparative confessional study would do a lot of good for people mm-hmm. to take the London Confession, the Philadelphia Confession of the Baptist tradition, and right. the Westminster Confession, and read them and say, you guys believe all that? Right. I didn't know that. Now, a lot of Baptists have not been confessional in nature, and part right. of the, the excitement of what we see going on at Southern is a rediscovery of confessional Baptist theology, and that theological underpinning brings a lot of unity. Well, it does, but I'll also say that it's uh, it, it's sort of like theological Darwinism. It's the survival of the fittest. A confessional Protestantism is going to be all that remains uh, because everything else is going to melt away with the disappearance of cultural Christianity. Uh, the reality is that uh, only those churches that hold themselves accountable to a confession of faith and, and do so not out of obligation but out of joy are going to be left standing in, in terms of uh, what we would recognize as the visible church. Uh, I think that's what has, has, has really changed. We used to have the luxury of having this discussion, believing that we're all going back to our full churches and, uh, and, and to a basically a, a, a Christian America in the way that people, especially evangelicals, thought of America in the 50s and 60s. We now know that world is gone. Uh, mainline Protestant denominations are collapsing. It's, they're the bare-ruined choirs of, of what used to exist. And consumer-driven evangelicalism is going to disappear as well. And what's going to be left? Are they going to be the confessional churches? That's good. There's that line that says liberalism may have children, but it has no grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. Because it becomes sterile. It does not evangelize. It has nothing to believe. And it so conforms to the culture that soon, why bother to be right. in a group that's unlike, I mean, like everything else? Confessionalism says we're not stopping time. We're continuing to say timeless truths in a changing world. It's Westminster at its best. You know, we say we have God's unchanging word for a changing world. That's our distinctive. And we share that because of a confessional commitment to the authority of the word of God that speaks to all of life. You know, I feel like uh, as, a, as a Southern Baptist, I'm, I'm just really responsible to say that I would not be sitting here having this conversation if it were not for the fact that there were literally thousands of faithful Southern Baptists willing to do what had to be done to recapture a denomination. And many of them would not even articulate everything that we would want to talk about and feel the need to talk about here. But they deeply loved Christ, they deeply loved His church, and they knew, they had a deep instinct that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, and anyone who questions that shouldn't be teaching in their schools. So there's a recovery. Building on that for the next generation, they're going to have to know more. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, as, we, as we begin to wrap up, I want to ask a couple brief questions uh, just to spur on the conversation just a little bit. Um, Dr. Muller, you've already uh, m- mentioned many names, but I was wondering if you could mention to our listeners, uh, the Baptists that listen, and we do have several, and we know because when our friends uh, <laughs> James Dolzell and Bob LaRocca come out, we get an extra response. But 
For our Baptist listeners, who are some people you might encourage them to read that are from the Presbyterian side of things or the Westminster uh, tradition? What are some Westminster people that you would encourage Baptists to read? Oh, well, I mean, I mean, first of all, start with Calvin. Uh, no, not a Presbyterian, but the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the font of, the, of what we know as Calvinism. Uh, I, would, I would suggest uh, coming even to 19th century America, read people. I mentioned Benjamin Morgan Palmer. I, I, I mentioned folks like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, read Hodge, Alexander, uh, coming in the 20th century. Read Warfield. Uh, I mean, the, the whole Princeton seminary tradition of old Princeton is rife with this. I mean, my institution wouldn't have a confessional heritage uh, that we articulate the way we do, if not for Samuel Miller. Um, and then, uh, you know, moving moving very much uh, into the into the present, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm going to be embarrassed because I will leave people out that I should oh, mention. It's, it's but, plenty. You know, I, I will tell you this. I'm in Philadelphia. One of the greatest encouragers I had in my ministry was James Montgomery Boyce. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even pastorally, there's just, there's just so much good stuff there. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lilback, who would you have? What Baptist would you have some Presbyterians read? You need to read Spurgeon because mm-hmm. of his love for the Word of God, his uh, pulpit uh, oratory that's unparalleled to this day, the massive amount of preaching that's available. You're Pick up any volume and just start reading, and, and you will find something that will encourage you to preach better. You may not like his exegesis sometimes, but let me tell you, his homiletic skill is unparalleled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think while he wouldn't be my first systematic theologian, you should uh, pick up strong systematic theology. It's dated, it's Baptist, but it's still a classic statement of theology. And I pull it off the shelf periodically just to say, what did classic Baptist theology say? And I find his categories actually create a great foil. I'm reading Calvin, I'll read Hodge, I'll read Warfield, and I'll read Strong and a few others. So I think also you need to read Al Mohler's works. This man has been raised up to be a reformer at the highest order, and it's a great honor to have him here for the Gaffin Lectures. So I would urge you to go out and buy a couple of his books. He's yeah. someone you need to read. There are several. That's there are several. <laughs> uh, just uh, tying things up, uh, bringing things around full circle, speaking about the seminary. We've talked about the seminary's role in the culture and its relationship to the local church, etc. Who would you encourage to come to seminary? Who are some types of people that you would encourage to come, and who might you discourage from coming if there are any such people? Dr. Muller? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's very dangerous for a theological seminary to be needy for students uh, because then the temptation is to receive the wrong students, mm. and, and that changes the complexion and, and composition of the institution and its character as well. So I would say, first of all, without apology, I go after the man who is called to be the pastor, the, to hold the teaching office. Uh, we put an unapologetic emphasis upon our master of divinity. We have, we have the largest master of divinity in the history of the Christian church. Uh, because, But that's costly. That, that, that means we lose students who, uh, who really aren't looking for that. We do not allow anyone into a, any master's program other than the MDiv who does not sign a statement saying that they will not serve as pastor of a church. They're, 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 they're training for a lay ministry. Um, but I would say for seminary, number one, you know, I, I'm not. I've had a lot of medical issues in my life, and I look at the wall of every doctor I go to visit. I want lots of good frame certificates and places I recognize. <laughs> if I'm going to place my life in your hand, I want medical schools that that, that sound legit. Harvard, <laughs> Yale, Johns Hopkins, they sound great. Uh, the, but. Why is it when people think about what's even more important, which is the care of souls, all of a sudden they think someone can do with something less than 
than the best. Uh, I want students who know they're going to be holding the care of souls in their hands, and uh, and thus they need the very highest standard of education. I don't want anyone who's looking for less than that. Yeah. Dr. Lilbeck, any thoughts on that? Well, we believe the MDiv is our primary program, but we believe also that there need to be trained people in all spheres of life. And so I think anybody who is a serious scholar who wants that knowledge to impact their lives are welcome to study if they can make it at the acceptance level here at Westminster. We want to say to people, you need to live out that Puritan principle of William Ames of Theozoia, that life and knowledge go together. Theology is living to God. That's what he meant by that Greek phrase. And so anybody who says, I want to live for God, and I want to do it on the basis of biblical knowledge, if they're going into medicine, if they're going into law, if they're going into teaching, or hopefully, most importantly, going into pastoral ministry, it's appropriate for them to come and study at seminary. Mm. Okay, So a holistic message, that's a, a hallmark of Westminster. I think that's very helpful. And this has been a very excellent discussion and very insightful, and I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this much. Uh, let me point people to the appropriate website so that everyone can uh, find more information if they would so desire. You can find Southern uh, the, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, just like <laughs> The Ohio State. That's right. Uh, they're available at sbts.edu, a wealth of information there, uh, constantly being updated, and it's a very helpful website. Of course, Dr. Moeller is available at albertmoeller.com, and uh, you can find out information about everything he has done and, and information about all sorts of topics. Uh, very, very many resources available there as well. Uh, and of course, Westminster Theological Seminary is online at wts.edu, uh, and there you'll find information about uh, their programs as well. And we are online at reformedforum.org, where we have a host of audio and video programs dealing with all sorts of topics in Reformed theology and philosophy. Uh, My name is Camden Busey, and we want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.